ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, Brooke Nindorf with you for The Country Hour today. Hope you had a great weekend. What have you got up to? There's some pretty warm weather in uh, most parts of the state, but also some rain in others. We're going to check in with the Bureau shortly. But also, parts of the outback are still flooding. First up, look, the, the rain is good uh, for the pastoralists and things like that. Fantastic. But uh, it's doing a lot of damage to the roads up there, as we can appreciate. But certainly, look, uh, they had another 42 mils of rain last night. We'll have more on that shortly, but we'd love to hear from you. Did you get some big rain over the weekend? You can send me a text on 0467 922 and let me know what sort of tallies you had and uh, you know what's meant for you in that region. But first today, the Federal Government's significant industrial relations bill closing loopholes passed the Senate late last week and it's had some big implications for the transport sector. Under those changes, the Fair Work Commission would be able to set minimum standards for the road transport industry, including the charge-out rates of independent contractor-owner drivers. The Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association has been actively campaigning in recent months to get an exemption for rural transport operators from the bill, arguing it could push smaller players out of the industry. ALRTA Executive Director Rachel Smith says while they've had success for livestock carriers, they had concerns for other rural operators under a one-size-fits-all approach. Livestock and rural uh, transport is quite different to a metropolitan setting or even um, some of the more regional settings, settings like your larger regional towns, um, in that the supply chain isn't necessarily a continuous supply chain. There's a lot of backloading. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, various loads would be taken on any journey, whether there's picking up more stock from feedlots or sale yards or primary producers um, through to backloading of, you know, hay and other things. So trying to, I guess, get a nuanced approach within a, within a rigid framework where there's typically just a consigner and consignee doesn't necessarily apply to that rural context. I understand within uh, these changes, it does allow for uh, some charge-out rates or for rates to be, minimum rates to be set within the chain. Is that a significant change to to what is currently in place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So at the moment, uh, each carrier negotiates their own terms of freight and not their own terms of around the rates that they charge of freight. Um, So having the setting of minimum rates although that's acknowledged to be the floor, not the ceiling, it has the potential over time to morph into a set rate for the supply chain, which may not take into consideration individual input, uh, operational and business inputs into what determines a fair rate for what's being carted. So as you say, it could be set uh, rather than sort of a, a, a starting point, that could really be the, the ceiling or be treated as the ceiling as such. Yes, yeah, yes, and then there may be some you know, consigners or consignees that want to achieve a homogenous rate across their transport um, carriers, um, which, you know, as I said, is not in reflective of individual business costs. In rural areas, it is, they're often more smaller operations or single owner operators. How does this impact them in, in terms of what changes this bill could bring about? You know, there is some concern or caution um, having for some of these carriers, particularly after the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal 
um, outcomes in 2016 that, you know, they're not going to be able to um, recuperate their business costs if there is a rate that is set um, that doesn't meet those outputs. Um, so putting, you know, pressure on small business owners and um, transport has a lot of capital costs and injections. So, you know, we're talking about people that buy a prime mover for half a million dollars plus customised trailers. Um, so they're, they're very capital heavy, you know, they're small businesses, they're mums and dads with a mortgage on top and they're trying to put their kids through school. So not being able to accurately reflect the cost of doing business in their freight rates is a, is a potential concern for them. Now, I know that the uh, the association has been um, campaigning on this for quite a while and you've had a number of meetings in, in Canberra over this. Uh, you've been seeking to get an exemption, I understand, for, for rural uh, and remote transporters? Yes, that's correct. And there's been an agreement uh, for a livestock exemption uh, that will be put into the regulatory framework that sits underneath the legislation. Um, so, you know, that takes care of about 80% of my members, but then, you know, we still do have a large proportion of members that are rural carriers and whether they're doing, you know, grains, pulses, fertiliser, water, you know, they've still got some concerns about how the, the bill will impact them and a lot of that detail will come out in the regulatory framework that sits underneath the legislation itself. So with that exemption, as you said, that's just for, for livestock. So from your understanding, will they carry on under the previous system? Yes, so they'll sit sort of outside of that road transport section of the closing loopholes. And with the remainder, I know that there is a, a committee being put together, uh, an advisory group, uh, and that there is a, a consideration around a majority owners being part of that uh, that subcommittee. Are you fighting to have a rural representation as part of that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of our submissions to uh, the inquiry and to government and in our discussions, um, you know, with government representatives and the crossbench, we have asked for a rural, a rural transport advisor to be included as part of that road transport advisory group, um, just to ensure that the, you know, the rural transport industry and regional communities are are effectively represented in that forum. The Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Executive Director Rachel Smith speaking with Selena Green. And amendments to the bill require the establishment of a majority owner driver subcommittee to advise the Fair Work Commission on road transport minimum standards. Now, the world is in between harvests with southern hemisphere seasons crawling to a close and the north in winter hiatus. But global wheat and grain stores are looking healthy. Nick Carraher is the CEO at commodity analyst Lockstock Consulting and he says taking a worldwide wheat stock take has some complicating factors, but he reckons access shouldn't be a problem across global markets. We're in the middle of two seasons at the moment. So we've pretty much got the southern hemisphere harvest in the bin. And the Northern Hemisphere crop is largely dormant uh, over the winter months. So we are straddling a couple of crop years here. But from a, a global perspective, the devil's in the detail. When you start looking at global stocks, it, we have to acknowledge that China carries a huge amount of those carryover inventories. So around between 52 and 54% of the global's carryover actually sits onshore China. And the significance of that is that they don't generally export wheat. So why we look at the headline numbers and things look pretty comfortable, we really have to drill into those numbers and, and look at what's actually available to the wider market. And that's why we tend to focus on the major exporters, which is a bunch of countries that generally produce more than they use. And as a result, that is the focus that we um, that we have when trying to decide whether we've got enough grain or not. What are we actually talking about in terms of availability of time? Is it a matter of days or weeks or months? 
Look, I, I think from a, a global balance sheet perspective, if you're a, say, a, a Southeast Asian consumer, for example, there's enough inventory going around. We've had a number of really big crops in Australia, but additionally, we've had some monster crops in, in Russia. In terms of availability, there isn't really a huge squeeze at the moment when you're trying to access grain. I think the, the significance of the dispute that we're seeing in Russia and the, U- and the Ukraine really um, putting the question when you've got such a dominant supplier like Russia, how available that inventory is to the market. And I think leading into that dispute, people were really concerned about the ability to access that grain. But since then, Russia's been really efficient, like, as efficient as they've ever been. They've set records in terms of their export program. And that's really kept a lid on global value. And is there a global emergency store of grains in in any way, shape or form? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I think certain destinations have a a strategic reserve policy. Even Russia does. But, you know, places like India, for example, will warehouse a percentage of their inventory that they grow every year. The government actually purchases that and then they release it in a method really to control domestic price, also supply, but they use it to make sure that A, their growers are looked after, but B, there's no food inflation, which is obviously a, a key issue for a lot of these emerging markets. So an interesting note on that is that the Indian reserves are as low as we've seen them in, in recent time, which had, had been a flag for a long while. There was a lot of conjecture around whether they'd actually become quite an importer. Remember, they produce 110-odd million tonnes of wheat, but there was, I guess, a period of time where people thought they may turn importer, which would have been strategically pretty supportive to global values, but they've managed to get through just based on uh, what has been a, a pretty big rice crop. Speaking of India, they are known for during times of crop failures or during um, supply chain issues such as during COVID, they do impose export bans on certain commodities, so certain types of grain, for example, that they consume domestically. Has it ever been the case or could you ever see it being the case that something similar could happen in Australia? Uh, That we have export bans? Yeah, Look, I think if we look back over our history, where well, we've had some, you know, some shocking droughts across the country, and we've produced, um, you know, well under our averages, we haven't been in a situation where we have had to restrict exports. The efficiency of the market is um, is pretty interesting. I, th- I think what we've seen, and and as recently, if we go back into 2018, 19 and 1920, we actually produced 15 to 17 million tonnes nationally, which, yes, it's below the, the usual production, but is enough to satisfy our domestic consumption. The interesting part through those years is that we actually imported Canadian grain into the east coast of Australia while we were aggressively exporting out of WA. You know, we're a big country, we've got a good geographical hedge in terms of production and we're able to move inventory around. But such is the nature and the efficiency of global markets that if we don't have enough grain, it's just a matter of finding that level that we can actually solve the problem by importing grain. So, yeah, I think it would be unlikely that we're actually circling the wagons and not letting any grain out of the country. Lockstock Consulting CEO Nick Carraher speaking with Fiona Broom. Brooke Nindorf with you for The Country Hour today. It's 16 minutes past 12. How to relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holiday. Throwing in a line. Great time. Other fish biting. Hard. <laughs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal. Hard. And generally getting teed off. Don't swing too. Hard. 
How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back to work to relax. <laughs> the new season of Hard Quiz. <laughs> Wednesday nights on ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iView. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, 3G technology is being switched off and maybe you've got some concerns about what that could mean for you. There's a chance that you're using some tech that only works on the 3G network. So what happens now? Well, there's a chance to get some answers when Grain Producers SA hosts a webinar on this in the next couple of days. Brad Perry is the CEO of GPSA and spoke with Selena Green about how relevant 3G is for the farming community. Oh, it's it's hugely relevant still, um, Selena. It's quite interesting that you pointed out that you know, that it is a bit of an outdated technology and very true, but for many of the grain producers in South Australia, 3G is the only uh, connectivity that they can get. So it's the only reception they can actually pick up. So that's why there's a bit of uh, angst out there at the moment on what's going to happen when particularly Telstra, who's the major, who's got major coverage across South Australia, but, you know, also Optus, switch off from the 3G network, switch over to 4G. Um, you know, we're hoping that there's no gaps in that process. Um, we're, we're being assured that there is, but there's still a lot of concern out there amongst um, grain producers. So, you know, that's why we're, uh, we're putting on a, a webinar. So what will be covered in that webinar? Yeah, so, um, and this is based off, yeah, some feedback we've been getting from, from grain producers across South Australia. And there has been a lot of it on social media as well, discussion on, you know, what's going to happen with the switch off because... One of the things that we sort of think has been underestimated is the amount of 3G technology that's still being used on farms, and that's going to require uh, that, that'll be switched off. So that'll require replacement um, and upgraded to at least 4G. Um, and, and again, that's a cost for, for grain producers, and, and many of them may not know that it's 3G only technology. So we pulled together a webinar on the 15th of February. Anyone's welcome to register and have a listen. We're going to have um, obviously grain producers that say will be on there, but we're also going to have Telstra and Optus. So you'll be able to speak directly to, to Telstra and Optus senior representatives. And we've also got the regional tech hub too, who um, will be able to put through a a range of other solutions but importantly we've uh, we've left plenty of time there for questions so if you're a grain producer in south australia and you've got a concern or um, you want to ask a question to the powers that be in, in telstra and optus about the switch off this is your opportunity and this is very timely because this has already started happening in some areas and there are other parts of our state that are scheduled for this to happen quite soon yeah that's right sir I actually got invited out by Telstra to, to go to the driving round um, the state and, and this time uh, it was through the York Peninsula where we met with some grain producers and talked about some of the technology. And what they were doing is trying to test the equivalence between 3G and 4G in, in the switchover to make sure that everything will run pretty smoothly. And it was quite clear that, yeah, there, there's still some angst out there. So hopefully, um, you know, having the, the major telcos and senior people from those organisations uh, online just for, for grain producers and, and anyone else who wants to tune in, but we'll be focusing on the grain industry in South Australia. Hopefully that you know, either can help with some of those concerns or, um, you know, at least provide some additional information that we need on this switch-off. Yes, at the end of the day, this all highlights just how important and critical connectivity is to people in the industry. Oh, it's, it's completely critical. You, you can't run a business without reliable um, connectivity. And I think for too long it's just been accepted by people in regional areas and grain producers that, oh, well, you know, I don't have great coverage here or I have to go and climb on a hill to make a phone call. You know, if I dance around a particular spot, I'll get two minutes of good coverage. 
I think that's just been accepted, not not happily accepted. Um, but times come now where we are changing technology, where there are other technology options too for for grain producers. That I think they've said, right, we've had enough. We need this now. We've got a lot of technology in our business, a lot of data collection, and we really can't operate without it. So we need reliable connectivity. Brad Perry, CEO of Grain Producers SA, speaking with Selena Green. And that 3G switch-off webinar is happening from 10 until 11.30 on February 15th. All the details are on the Grain Producers website, grainproducerssa.com.au. Uh, you can register there as well for that webinar and there's plenty of details as well on all the GPSA social medias as well. Now, early last week, the state's northeastern parcel district received a whole heap of rain, with some stations recording almost the yearly average rainfall in just a few days. And this morning, some areas there have also received even more rain. There is a current flood warning for the Cooper Creek in Aminka. And Jeff Brock is Minister for Local Government and Regional Roads, and he spoke with Tom Mann earlier this morning to find out what section has been worst hit. First up, look, the, the rain is good uh, for the pastoralists and things like that. Fantastic. But uh, it's doing a lot of damage to the roads up there, as we can appreciate. But certainly, look, uh, they had another 42 mils of rain last night. And at the end of the day, is that the, the worst parts are the Cooper's Creek uh, crossing there. The Streslicky track from Inaminka to Murty Murty is uh, is that's uh, due to that's really a significant rainfall there, damaging on the uh, the Della Road and the recesses are going to be have a look at that today. Uh, the road is open to four wheel drive traffic only and heavy vehicles from Murty Murty to Moomba only. Uh, the other thing is the Streslicky track uh, from Mount Hopeless to Lindhurst that is only cautioned for wheel, wheel four wheel drives only. And look, the, there's a lot of rain up there and this it's created a lot of uh, damage to the roads but the de- we've got the department up there and working very uh, and assessing the roads etc and things like that and we want to try and get these roads back as uh, open as soon as we can. And so Minister Brock, as you said there is work uh, going on at the moment do you, do you have an idea of what the latest estimate is or, or ha- how long it is before access from uh, say Moomba to Inaminka could be opened back up? Well, we're trying to get it open as quick as we can. Bearing in mind, uh, there's, uh, there's, we've got the, the department's got people up there. Uh, also, as, uh, as reported the other day, there were uh, gangs from uh, the Moomba gas fields up there pumping water out also off the roads and things like that. And, and look, the pastoralists up there are absolutely fantastic. They'll, they'll assist wherever they can to be able to uh, get these roads opened up. But uh, we, we're working as, as quick as we can to be able to get those roads open again. And bearing in mind uh, from the photographs that we supplied last uh, on Friday, you can see that the, the water is absolutely uh, really all over the place it's everywhere up there and uh, what what will happen and this is a uh, it, it, look, this is going to take some time. The flooding itself will probably likely take weeks to actually get it right back to a, a more uh, drivable and safe condition. And just finally, Minister Brock, uh, looking longer term, that road obviously an important supply line for industry, outback communities, yes, pastoralists, as well as tourism. How, how are government plans progressing to, to seal the road? Well, put it this way, the, the stress leaky track is 49% sealed already. There's funds in there. That's a combination from the federal and also the state government. The issue is that we are able to Scott, get... There's been lots of rain over there you start doing some uh, remedial work you start doing some uh, some sealing and then all of a sudden the weather comes in which I said is terrific for the pastorals and the area out there but it has a great impact uh, on uh, trying to seal any any roads at all whether it's on the Strads or any other roads across all of regional South Australia once the moisture's underneath there it's very it's basically impossible to actually put a good seal on it but as I say it's 49 percent I think it's 49 percent of the road itself uh, uh, is uh, 40.5 in actual fact it is and uh, we'll be assessing all this, uh, the impact on the works underway but most of the damage has been done on the unsealed sections.
Jeff Brock, Minister for Local Government and Regional Roads, speaking with Tom Mann. And if you are planning on driving out there, please check conditions before you go. You can call 1300 361 033 or visit the Outback Roads Warnings website. Let's find out what is happening with that, that rain and the rest of the weather across the state. We're joined by Jenny Horvat at the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon, Brooke. A bit of rain around with some also some bit of warmer weather as well. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit of a little bit of a mixed bag. We've still got a little bit of that tropical moisture hanging around the the northeast there today, and with a bit of a trough, looks like it might drag that a little bit further south. And um, we did see some more activity up there in the early hours of this morning, um, with Moomba having another severe thunderstorm in the early hours, picking up 43 millimetres of rain within sort of the hour, with falls of maybe around 30 millimetres in 30 minutes. So quite intense for a period through there. And with the storms yesterday afternoon up around Unadada, we saw um, 15 millimetres up through there. So it has continued to rain up in that corner of the of the world. And again, just having a bit of a, a look at the satellite picture at the moment, we are still seeing some thunderstorm activity. Most of it is on the Queensland side, but there is um, a little bit up on our side, up just sort of south of Birdsville there and south um, west of Birdsville. So as the afternoon conditions... Um, continue probably likely to see some of that thunderstorm activity again around the Moomba area maybe a bit more broad across the northeast pastoral district heading sort of towards um, Broken Hill as well. Further south though with the high pressure system in the Tasman and that trough um, we are bringing some northerly air down so we are seeing some very hot temperatures across the, the state for today and just having a bit of a look to see where we're at at the moment. We've already hit 40 degrees at um, Woodner, Port Augusta and Tarkula, just under 40 there at Snowtown and Roseworthy. So yeah, quite a bit of heat around for today. But um, we will see some relief coming across from the west and across southern parts on Tuesday. A bit of a gusty change that will move move across from the west um, and into central districts on the on the Tuesday. Maybe not quite pushing up into the far northeast on the Tuesday, but on the Wednesday, and we will start to see a little bit of um, relief with that. So having a bit of a look, we've still got that tropical infeed with that trough. So still expecting to see some thunderstorms around on um, on Tuesday. So again across the pastoral dist- northeast pastoral district across the eastern border there possibly down to the riverland parts of the murraylands mid-north flinders district and maybe adjacent parts of the northwest pastoral district through there and then combined with that gusty change pushing up we're likely to see some elevated fire dangers across a few districts um tomorrow so we are looking at maybe Eastern Air Peninsula the mid-north murraylands and riverland potentially seeing um fire warnings issued this afternoon and as a consequence those fire bans but that is all getting looked at closely today so I watch this space for this afternoon for um, those warnings. Also likely to see some marine warnings um, following that gusty change and with all that water out there we still do have that um, flood warning for the inland rivers so still got that flooding occurring around Inaminka with the Cooper Creek things are starting to settle a bit through there but then we're also watching the um, water coming down the Diamond Teeter sort of around Birdsville so they do have that moderate flood warning over for Queensland and we are expecting to see that water continuing so that's not good for getting those roads um, fixed up in that 
area, unfortunately. But once we sort of see this change move through, things will settle down midweek. Those storms contracting to the northeast and clearing on Wednesday. And again, another high-pressure system to the south of us, so expecting to see some more settled and milder conditions in that um, south-southeasterly airstream. But as we head towards the weekend, we'll see those winds shifting again, more east-northeasterly and temperatures slowly on the rise as we head into the weekend. Not expecting too much rain. So with that change, it is looking like a bit of a dry change, but a few spots along the coastal parts not out of the, the question. And tomorrow and um, following that change a little bit on Wednesday, but really looking at less than a millimetre around coastal parts, maybe about five millimetres across the east and northeast with the storms and possibly some local falls of 20 millimetres with storms there. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Jenny. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology. Let's have a look at for the western inlands for tomorrow. Upper western, sunny morning, slight chance of a shower in the afternoon and evening. The chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. For the lower western, a sunny morning with a medium chance of showers in the late afternoon and evening and the chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures falling to the low to mid-20s with daytime temperatures reaching 36 to 41. Still plenty to come on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks for your company. Coming up, back in the days before refrigeration, many small towns had their own butter and cheese factories But as farms got bigger and technology improved, they became pretty obsolete. But now, one old butter factory is getting a new lease on life. It's become a passion, really, and and such a great project for the town. I want to see it finished. So the boys, you know, we've all got this urge to sort of see it right through from the very start. And uh, lucky to have a really good crew that hang around and come every week for volunteer day, like working bee days and um, fundraising and all sorts of things. We'll hear more on the Malang Butter Factory very shortly, but we'd love to hear from you. What would you like to see make a comeback or have restored? You can send me a text on 0467 922891. But before that, let's get the latest from the newsroom. We're joined by Chris McLaughlin. Good afternoon, Chris. Good afternoon, Brooke. The Premier says he's hopeful of the right outcome as the federal government prepares to unveil the future of the Hunter-class frigate program and other naval projects. Next week, the Albanese government will release its long-awaited response to the Navy warship review. The ABC has learnt it will confirm the controversial $45 billion Hunter-class frigate program will survive, a result for which the Premier had pushed. The largest intake of graduate nurses for the Central Adelaide Local Health Network has signed on today. The 300 graduate nurses will be working at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and the Queen Elizabeth Hospital with 63 starting today. Management of Adelaide's ice arenas say the venue's ice resurfacing machine was having problems before it leaked toxic fumes over the weekend. 42 people, including two children, have been treated for carbon monoxide poisoning since visiting the Thebiton Ice Arena on Saturday. Safework SA is investigating reports that the fumes were emitted by a faulty exhaust on the machine used to resurface the ice. And Australia's ended its Olympic qualifying tournament in Brazil, undefeated with a 75 points to 73 win over Serbia. They'll next prepare for the July Games with a series of tours and friendly fixtures. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Chris. Chris McLaughlin in the newsroom. Now, over the weekend, up to 30 golden perch fish were found dead in a section of the Weir Pool in Menindee. 100 kilometre 
kilometres east of Broken Hill. It's only a month away from the one-year anniversary of the mass fish kills of 2023, so the possibility of further fish deaths has placed the town on high alert. Menindee resident Graham McCrabb said that locals are concerned about the findings. Ah, uh, yeah, no, it's very concerning, and uh, certainly um, a few varying sizes, but the bulk of those fish that I saw were, were quite large. Uh, you know, 45 centimetre sort of marks. So, yeah, you know, mature fish, that's, um, yeah, it's really concerning. And, and, you know, fish handling does get blamed for fish kills a little bit and over the top sometimes here, I think, because you don't get that many dead fish. You might get one or two or whatever, but no one's throwing a 40 centimetre fish back that's, um, that has died. That, you know, that's certainly going onto a, a dinner plate somewhere. So, yeah, so definitely concerning. New South Wales Fisheries are, are aware and uh, they are going to have an, uh, an investigation in, into what occurred. I mean, what, what's the feeling with Menindee residents? Oh, again, too little, too late. I, I think, you know, like the investigation stuff's fine, but uh, from previous experience, we had those cod die uh, last year and there was no one on the ground and we know that you have to get those fish basically as they die uh, onto ice and then off and there's a really tight window of time to do autopsies on fish. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of responsibility placed on that new position here in town that's probably really unfair and I still don't think that's been resourced properly. I haven't seen a government boat myself all weekend and definitely there hadn't been a government boat on the river until lunchtime yesterday, so there might have been afterwards. But, uh, yeah, from, from before that, there still hadn't been a government boat until full back of the Weepool. So we sit in the same place for me. We haven't really advanced too far. And because the Chief Science Report sits there, we don't have a roadmap to how some of those things or any of that stuff's going to be done. It seems to be just dumped on the committee. This is what's happened. There's no consultation still. Um, the independent body that was set, that was recommended to sit above the works and the departments that are carrying out the works, um, that, that hasn't been implemented. And you sit there and you just you scratch your head. And if, if CARP, which is possible, if CARP have had anything to do with this fish kill, then really that, that's a blight on the government and fisheries, to be fair, that... Um, there's been no immediate action taken to reduce the numbers of carp in the weepool. I know that there's been people come out from fisheries to look, but they never engaged with the community. They never took on any other outside um, input into into what could be done. And, you know, a- even for the sake of having a proper serious carp muster here. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the, re- the level here at the moment, 1.62 metres, which is steady. Is there a- a- still a bit of a flow coming through that weirpool? Yeah, so they, um, as much as they said, it's not oxygen they reacted to uh, low oxygen and increased the flows on um, Saturday night I believe so that that flow is still um, yeah it's evident you can see the leaves and the rubbish on the top. An India resident Graham McCrabb speaking to Andrew Schmidt and in a statement from New South, Wales, New South Wales Minister for Water Rose Jackson she said that she's been advised that oxygen levels in the Menindee Weirpool are at a good level for fish health and is not believed that a lack of oxygen is a contributing factor to the fish deaths spotted on the 10th of February. Um, New South Wales Fisheries are aware of the report of dead fish and are investigating and have removed golden perch from Menindee for testing and the ABC has contacted Water New South Wales for comment as well. Now, let's find out what is uh, in season at the moment with fruit and veg. We're joined by Penny Reedy, Marketing Communications Manager for the SA Produce Market and Campaign Manager for Pick a Local Pick SA. Penny Reedy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back again. No worries at all. It's great to have you on the program, and I'm quite excited about this one. This new variety that's coming up sort of around Valentine's Day, the Summer Love Apple. I know, very good timing for that name of that apple, isn't it? Lens with her onto something there. So one of our growers up in the Adelaide Hills was noticed a 
different looking branch on his tree and um, went back and grafted a couple of trees from it and came up with a new variety called the Summer Love. It's a stunning red colour apple. It's got beautiful white flesh and it's really hard and crunchy. So it's a great new apple and yeah, just in time for Valentine's Day. I absolutely love that. (laughs) Definitely. Now, it's only going to be around for a short time though. Yeah, it is. So at the moment, so like I said, he grafted two trees and then he's planted 3,000 trees now. Actually sent 12 small sticks to South Africa and they've sold a million trees all over the world. But here in South Australia, it's only going to be on the shelves for about four weeks this season. So if you can get them, get them from your local fruit and veg at the moment um, because this variety won't be around for very long. But we do have new season apples that are starting to come through the market at the moment. So your new season galas and pink ladies have started to arrive in the Adelaide Hill. And it's great to see those new varieties of freshly picked apples hitting our shelves. Um, They're tasting fresher and crisper and from the Adelaide Hills. So we make amazing apples here in South Australia. Definitely. Another good fruit that we do well is uh, pears and they're also out and about as well. Yes, and there's also a new variety there that seems to be on a bit of a Valentine's theme, a new pear called a cutie pear. It's spelled Q-T-E-E, but if you went and got your Valentine's some summer love apples and some cutie pears and some heart-shaped strawberries, you'd be doing all right, I think. (laughs) You might get lucky. (laughs) But yeah, we've also got the Packhams have started to be peaked, the Red Sensations, the new cutie ones, they're a red blush with a great tasting and really good shelf life. So plenty of pears around. And like I said, also Valentine's Day strawberries. And the guys up in Adelaide who was at Shiravalos have put them into a heart-shaped box for us just in time for Valentine's as well. You could add some uh, some grapes to this as well, Um, uh, Penny, and also avocados are all now in supply too. Yeah, so grapes, we notice in South Australia we're known for our wine grapes, but we also do grow some good varieties of table grapes as well. So you'll find the white seedless ivory grapes at the moment, and in the black ones you'll find the Midnight Beauties, really high in antioxidants and great for a cheese platter. And if you like your avocados, we've got a variety called a reed avocado, which is in supply at the moment. Um, Everyone's very familiar with the shepherd and the husk varieties, the reed avocado is more of a round avocado and the South Australian ones are very buttery. They're a bit larger as well. I almost think they look a bit like an ostrich egg. They're a bit larger in that size. Um, but look out for them. You'll also see the lamb house, which can confuse people because it already has colouring from the tree. So normally if you see a green avocado, you think it's not quite right. If you see a brown one, you think it's ready to eat. Well, the lamb has actually come off the tree already brown. So make sure you check them for their firmness if you're needing something to eat straight away. Let's look at some veg now. And uh, Roma tomatoes are proving popular. Yes, well, it's uh, lots of people are making sauce at the moment. The Italian community are having their sourcing days all over the place. It's that kind of season. But I tell you, the Roma tomatoes, I had some from one of our Virginia growers a couple of weeks ago, and the flavour is bursting this season. So, you know, nothing better than some tomatoes, bit of basil, olive oil, salt and pepper, and with that great flavour of the Roma tomatoes, um, look out for them in your local fruit and veg at the moment. And barbecue mushrooms, chucking them on the barbecue, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. It's barbecue season, so I thought I'd give a shout-out to the big barbecue mushrooms. Mushrooms are available all year round, so they don't have a special day or a season. You'll find them all the time. But I like giving them a bit of a shout-out every now and then. We're great growers of um, mushrooms in South Australia. We've got a big farm up at Monato that produces massive amounts. Then we've got um, SA mushrooms who are out at Waterloo Corner at Virginia. So they're grown here. They can be picked today and in, the, in your store tomorrow. The large open flat ones are a really versatile mushroom. If you haven't picked any of them up for a little while, you can use them in burgers. I use them as pizza bases. Um, you know, there's so much that you can do, and you can just chuck them on the barbecue while you're doing everyone's um, sausages at the same time. Exactly. And just finally, Penny, capsicums, also good for a, for a barbecue and a salad as well. That's right, and it's, it's those glasshouse lines that you're going to find in really good quality at the moment with that sunshine. So if you haven't picked up any capsicums, try them. Um, there's so many different varieties, which is what I love. You'll find the red, the green, the yellow. There's bullhorn capsicums. There's banana capsicums. Um, we grow plenty of different variety here in South Australia and a good way to add a little bit of variety to what you're cooking for the week. Penny Reedy, thanks very much for your time today and uh, thanks for uh, alerting us to all those options for Valentine's Day coming up a little bit later this week. Thanks for having me. That was Penny Reedy, Marketing Communications Manager for the SA Produce Market and the Campaign Manager for Pick a Local Pick SA. So there you go, quite a few options for uh, for Wednesday if you're looking for, uh, for Valentine's Day. It's uh, coming up to 18 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, many vineyards are gearing up for this year's vintage, and for some, they've already started. It's also good news for Taylor's Wines, who late last year, along with other growers, had a frost set in on some of the grapes. But the crops don't seem to be as as affected as first thought. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, says he's looking forward to seeing how this vintage will go, particularly off the back of another award win for the winery. Yeah, we're really excited. We've won the uh, Best International Wine at the... um San Diego International Wine and Spirits Challenge. And this is one of the major wine competitions in California where where all the wine is produced in the United States, but a real key market for um, Australian wines. And terrific to have our St Andrews Shiraz from the Clare Valley to be noticed in such a prestigious lineup of wines from all around the globe. What was it about this wine that they said uh, stood out? What the wine judges loved about it was its intensity, its flavour, and it was very smooth and silky. It was from the um, 2020 vintage, which was a great vintage for us on our estate, and and it really had that that lovely spice and um, texture that that Clare Valley Shiraz does so well. What is the US market like for Taylor Wines? It is a um, exciting market for us. I, I think... The U.S. is still discovering our top-end wines. I think Australian wines are going quite well at the entry level, but it really is the um, the more quality wines, like the um, St Andrews Clare Valley Shiraz, that Americans are starting to discover. And I think they like it because they go so well with their um, food. So they're really looking for these wines in the on-premise part of the market. 
And how well are these awards recognised in in the state? So is that mean that consumers go, oh, I've heard that you know a winery has won this award. Um, I'll, I'll purchase this wine. Yes, they do hear about it. It's been throughout the um, uh, social media, so they notice it. The other thing the Americans like because this got the top marks. This actually got ninety six points out of a hundred. So when they they see that with the wine and the 96 points in a prestigious um, wine competition. That, that gets a lot of the consumers excited and it gives them a reason uh, to try Australian wine as opposed to 80% of the market is produced in California. So it's great to win this big award um, against some of the best wines from California. Have you started vintage yet, Mitchell? Yes, we've just started uh, vintage. We've taken in a bit of, of our sparkling base so we're really excited by that, uh, taking in a bit of Chardonnay and, and Pinot and, and looking in the vineyard, um, it looks like we've got a really good season ahead. So we're, we're, we're quite excited. It looks like it'll be a little bit on the early side um, throughout the valley, but but we'll, we'll just see we've had really good ripening conditions that, that are rolling through. So um, it does look a, a promising vintage ahead. How did the region finish up with uh, that, that frost that they saw at the end of last year? Has that had much of a, an ongoing impact? It, it did in places. Um, it, it, it impacted um, parts of the valley. Some vineyards were not affected. But what was good about it was, was probably it, it was sprinkled in the, in the southern parts of the valley. But we were able to find um, other growers and other, other fruit to um, make, make up for it. So it did, did make a significant impact on some of the growers and, and we're very mindful of that. But it's terrific. The Clare Valley community have come together. We've all talked through the issues and have been very supportive, you know, to help those growers and winemakers that, that, that have been impacted. Another uh, topic that uh, is is talked about along among the uh, the wine industry a lot is is the China tariffs. There's still no date yet on, on when they could be lifted, but is the industry preparing at the moment, Mitchell, to to get ready to enter back into that market? Yes, we we are hopeful that we'll get a positive result. They were doing a uh, five month review, so we we hopefully will have some news fairly soon. We're expecting the decision to come come out probably in March, and in the meantime, we've been talking to our uh, pr- prospective customers and distributors. So there's a lot of action there in preparation. So hopefully we'll have a positive decision. Uh, Don Farrell's been doing some great work as Trade Minister in in mending um, the relationships. And we've also been hearing some some positive news from the Ambassador in Canberra. So we're, we're hoping, you know, fingers crossed, that we'll get a good outcome in the next month or so. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor. Now, the designer of luxury wedding gowns made from Reno Wall, the mastermind behind a groundbreaking community-focused app and a devoted advocate for suicide prevention have been shortlisted as the 2024 Agri-Futures Rural Women's Award for South Australia. Nikki Atkinson from the Flinders Ranges, Susie Evans from Mantung and Susie Williams from Wollonga will go in the running to win a $15,000 grant to support an existing project, business or program. The winner will also receive professional development opportunities and access to alumni networks. 
Networks. We're going to catch up with all of the finalists to find out what they are passionate about. And first up today, mental health. It is a very important topic to talk about. And Susie Evans from Mantung, she's been working to help people improve their mental health after the tragic loss of her son Murray in 2018. She's speaking here with Stephanie Nitschke, who asked her how she's feeling about the recognition. Oh, it, it's a little bit bittersweet. Obviously, you know, I always didn't want recognition for, you know, the loss of Muzz, but it's very overwhelming that, you know, through tragedy, something good can come and some purpose. So um, helping others is sort of my passion now, which is, yeah, but it's quite overwhelming, but very sort of proud to be amongst the other two finalists and recognising rural women. Yeah, and like you say, it is very bittersweet. And, you know, I know this cause is very close to your heart uh, because of, you know, your experience and what you've been through. But how would it feel to be, you know, a national finalist or even winner just to be able to spread your message further, I guess, help more people? Oh, absolutely. So the program I've written, Workbench for the Mind, I'm looking at um, not just doing it face-to-face but an online program and so that way it can reach more rural um, and regional people through being accessible through local libraries and schools and and so forth. So to be put on the national stage is just, um, yeah, such an honour and, yeah, quite overwhelming. It really mm. is. Never, never thought that this would happen, but, um, yeah, it'd be really good to, to be able to give people the access to help now. You know, there's so much going on in mental health and there's so much put in from a federal level, but um, the funds and the services seem to get bottlenecked. So to, my sort of theory is to come from a people in um, rural, remote areas need help today. And so by giving access to this program means we can have a ripple-up effect. So um, there, it would be amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned their workbench for the mind, which is um, something you've come up with uh, to help, you know, to, to help people further. Can you tell us, can you talk us through it a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so workbench. So Murray was a carpenter. So I came up with the workbench for the mind, um, which actually stands for um, wellbeing, optimism, resilience, kindness, care, balance, emotional intelligence, neuroscience, care and hope. So these are all things that the program helps people to identify. So we work through, you know, mindset growth versus fixed growth and we do goals versus habits and so on. And if you actually think the best way for me to describe it is probably like a lady's handbag or the glove box compartment in your car. If you tip the handbag up, tip everything out, lay it all on the table and then we compartmentalise things. So, you know, you put all the dirty tissues, the faded receipts, you work mm. out what you need, what you don't need, and then pack back up the tools um, that you need so that when life throws you curveballs, you've got quick access to them to be able to help yourself get through. So why is it so important, Susie, that we keep talking about mental health? It feels like we talk about it all the time, but why are these conversations so important? Because I think a lot of people are struggling and I think for me, the, a lot of people don't know where to get the help especially in rural remote areas, the access to services, the waits for doctors and psychologists and counsellors is so great. So to be able to give ourselves some tools to think, 
I think the thing is that a lot of the time what we're, what we're feeling is normal for what we're going through. And if people get a bit scared of mental health, but if you look at it as like your physical health, we try and think of it mental fitness. So the brain, while it's an organ, um, it's very much like a muscle and we need to exercise it. So I just really believe that if, through my own experience of doing the positive psychology, I learned how to understand my own emotions better and how to manage them more effectively. So the workbench for the mind creates those conversations and gives yourself those tools. So we need to keep the conversations going so that people aren't so scared of that word mental health. And so what would winning this help you to achieve being on that national platform? Oh, just the promotion, the exposure for my workbench for the mind and, you know, to win, it would just, yeah, be amazing. I I was born in the city but spent a lot of time in the country and now, you know, lived here for about 18 years and I've had, you know, grandmothers and aunties and great aunts and people that went before me in rural areas didn't have access to a lot of the tools we do today. So it would be honouring rural women that have gone before me and the money would help me develop the online program so that more regional, remote, rural people could access it. Susie Evans from Mantung, who is a 2024 Futures Rural Women's Award for SA finalist. You're speaking there with Stephanie Nitschke and we'll catch up with the other two finalists, Nikki Atkinson and Susie Williams, a little bit later this week. Now, finally today, back in the days before refrigeration, many small towns had their own butter and cheese factories. But as farms got bigger and technology improved, they became obsolete and were bypassed as milk and cream were sent to larger processing plants. One old butter factory on the Flurio Peninsula, however, is getting a new lease on life after sitting empty for decades. And it's thanks to nearly 10 years of planning and hard work by the locals. Caroline Horn has this story. On the banks of Lake Alexandrina... Near the end of the River Murray, the community of Malang has been working for almost 10 years to restore their historic butter factory. Back in the late 1800s, Malang was one of the country's busiest inland ports, with paddle steamers chuffing from across the lake and upriver to offload produce for transport to Adelaide. That's when an enterprising local, Arthur Lipson, built the town's distinctive barrel roof butter factory on a site overlooking the bustling jetty and lake. There was milk boats that came over, across the lake so that was a regular trade which docked and brought the milk up here. That's John Bradford from the Malang and District Community Association. There was a lot of smaller farms around in those days that had dairies you know like most of all the big ones got together and sold up and and became bigger farms and the day of the small cocky with these few cows was was over especially when the uh, refrigeration things came in. Bulk milk probably 50s, I would think. The factory's fortunes went up and down over the years and it was taken over by Farmers Union in 1919, ending up as a depot before closing in the 1960s. Since then, it's been quietly decaying until 10 years ago when the community association approached the owners of the factory and the adjoining manager's cottage to buy the site. Countless grant applications, barbecues, book sales, concerts and donated hours of volunteer work later, the finishing touches are now being applied. It's become a passion really and and such a great project for the town, I want to see it finished. So the boys, you know, we've all got this urge to sort of see it right through from the very start and uh, lucky to have a really good crew that hang around and come every week for volunteer day like working bee days and um, fundraising and all sorts of things. 
If John sounds a little muffled, that's because I've followed him and his wife Karen, who's also been one of the drivers of the project from the start, down into the slightly musty 13-foot cellar under the factory that was originally dug out by hand back in 1893. So we had it engineered and we had to beef it up with uprights and, and huge beams and rafters and things like that, so... So this would have been what, where they kept everything cool, I yeah, guess? Yeah, cheese and butter, yeah. And this is the really interesting thing. This is a tunnel that goes underneath the road and into the face of Todd's Hill, across the road. Oh, really? uh, and that was used as ventilation and cooling because at Malang we nearly always get a, an afternoon sea breeze that comes in. So that was a, the cooling mechanism for the cellar. The other end of the tunnel has been closed off, a bit of a landslip and, and it wasn't a safe place. But there are lots of stories from a few years ago where kids, you know, came in and we had a really interesting chap call in early in the restoration when we took taken over and he was at a scout camp here and a, a few of them had come in and they st stole a wheel of cheese and he felt guilty about it, like he was in his 70s and he felt guilty about it <laughs> all his lives that he gave us a donation. Now with all the larger engineering jobs done and the manager's cottage already in use by community organisations, the crew is now focused on transforming the old loading dock into a stage and fitting out the former factory for its new life as an event space complete with museum, commercial kitchen and all sorts of possibilities. Will you be yeah. sad when it all finishes? Yeah, well, people ask me what I'm going to do, so I don't know what, but yeah. Um, oh, sad, I'll be, I feel fairly relieved and proud, I think, because it has been such a great project and a, a, you know, a long one. Uh, you know, we had people come and go, but you know, the main crew have stuck with it and, uh, and now we've got the cottage open. Uh, it's, you know, that's one part that's done and this is so close now that it's, uh, you can taste it, you know. We've got the bookshop there and the museum that will be all set up with um, a whole range of the, the gear that we've had left. We'll dress it up and make it look the part and, yeah, and tell the story, that's the whole deal. You know? It's a great story and it's one we hope gets far and wide. That was John Bradford from the Malang and District Community Association. Uh, that story from Caroline Horn. And you can read more about the Malang Butter and Cheese Factory on the ABC News website. And the Malang and District Community Association is hoping to have the Lakeside Butter Factory officially opened in April. Now, before we were catching up with Penny Reedy from Produce SA, talking about some uh, the avocados that are now in season, uh, we got a text through from Jesse in Mitcham. They've said the reed need to ripen up for a few days, but the Hass have already had that ripen up time before going to the shop and they wish that they had an indicator label which is that would help for sure definitely let's find out what's coming up after one o'clock we're joined by Nikolai Bauhartz good afternoon Nikolai good afternoon how are you good thanks how handy would a, uh, a ripeness indicator be I was wondering if uh, what if you just put if you had little the avocado bit if you divided it up into say three and you could have ready right now ready in two days, ready in five days. <laughs> that would but actually be quite handy, yes. Someone's, it's got to be someone's job to go, okay, that one's ready, okay, that one's not ready. And check <laughs> them all. Might be a bit laborious. <laughs>
<laughs> it's not a bad idea. I like that idea, Nicola. Thank you. What copyright. else is that? Copyright. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that now. We'll paint it right now. <laughs> What's coming up on the show? Uh, well, Super Bowl is on as we speak. Um, there's a lot of logistics that, that take place as part as part of the Super Bowl. I, I discovered this morning that before that, the stadium that it's being held in opened, um, technicians and mechanics there uh, flushed all of the toilets and urinals <laughs> at the same time because when it's half time. Everybody goes to the toilet. Ah, good point. And so it becomes this like weird thing that you have to fig- you have to factor in if you're building a big stadium. So we're going to take a look at, at whether or not there are any parallels between the Super Bowl stadium and our houses. And you know, is there? Do we now live in a world where new houses that are built is it okay to turn the tap on while the shower's running, or is that still a no-no? Looking forward to hearing more about it. Thanks, Nikolai. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on the Country Out for today. Selena Green, we're back with you tomorrow. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. The ABC Listen app means you can take ABC Radio with you to the garden or around the country. Take a bit of home with you wherever you go. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.